0: 35, I'm delighted to be joined by a world-class tennis coach on the ATP and WTA Tours and performance coach at Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, Mike Digby. Mike is an experienced hitting partner and works with elite tennis players including Roger Federer and recently warmed up Ons de at the Wimbledon Centre Court before the 2023 singles final. Tune in as we discuss all things performance, tennis coaching and so much more. I hope you enjoy. it. Okay. Hi Mike, thanks a million for joining me on the podcast.
1: Hey, how you doing? How's it going?
0: Pretty good here. Uh, give us a bit of an intro about yourself for the listeners who might not know who you are. I know you're currently living in sunny Spain.
1: Yes, no. So I, I'm a current uh, performance tennis coach. Um, I'm based out in Spain at Soto Tennis Academy. Um, and yeah, I guess for the last 26 years of my life, I've... Uh, yeah, dedicated my craft uh, to trying to be the best I can at uh, what was playing and now now I'm coaching so
0: okay I'm interested kind of I'm always interested with coaches what their playing experience is I know you're in the states for a couple of years on scholarship but what was your path to getting over there
1: yeah so I I actually was a little bit of a latecomer to the game um I I always played since I was four five six years old but more from a recreational standpoint um I think a lot of players actually start competing when they're about eight or nine now. So it's quite, quite it's very, very young. And, and I probably didn't start competing properly till I was maybe 12, 13, which to some people might still be very young. But um, yeah, it, it's getting younger and younger year and year year on uh, each time with, with how yeah um, players are competing. So I... Um, yeah it didn't start till i was 12 13 and even then i probably wasn't really playing as much as others of my age in my age so but when i hit about 14 15 i think i started to kind of realize oh i'm actually quite good like <laughs> you know i can i can play a little bit and and i think i've got a bit of a sporty background my my dad played um badminton to a good level my mum played tennis to a good level um my, my grandparents, my granddad, sorry, played football. So I, I think I pick up things quite quickly. And um, and then kind of when I hit probably 16, 17, I thought, well, look, I am I am doing much better and I'm starting to maybe be able to compete with some of the better players in the country, but I'm still a latecomer. So at the time, and obviously it's booming now, college tennis was, was kind of the best option for me. I was never ready to play professionally at all at that age. And... Um, yeah, decided to take the route down uh, college tennis and go to the States for four years. Um, and then when when I was in the States, I was very lucky. I I actually, um, I think in my sophomore year, so my second year, I picked up a little bit of an injury at the back end of the season. And um, it means I went home and I was meant to be competing in, they had this thing in tennis called the German League, um, which basically it's a money league where you can go to Germany and play for a team. Um, and it's a really good way of being able to play matches, uh, money, um, and it's quite popular with college tennis players. Um, so I was meant to be doing that, but because I was injured, I couldn't. And my coach back home in the UK, that had been coaching me since I was probably uh, 11 or 12, um, said, Look, there's been an opportunity opening to be a hitting partner at Wimbledon. Um, and I thought, Cool, amazing. Like, you know, I went to Wimbledon as a kid. Absolutely loved it and and didn't really know too much about it, but thought, yeah, cool, I'll throw myself in the deep end. And yeah, that's kind of how it all started, really. And also, I guess, how my playing career probably ended as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's actually really interesting because I would have interviewed, there's a good few um, Irish basketball players in the States on scholarships. And it's interesting interviewing them about basketball and, and the collegiate level over there. It's very intense. You know, there's huge training with it. I'm assuming it's the same with tennis. When you, apart from having the that opportunity like that once in a lifetime thing to hit be a hitting partner at at Wimbledon would you did the states kind of turn you off playing was it okay you know when people go over there a lot of Americans don't play after college they realize okay I'm ready to retire would that have been the case anyway or was it more the opportunity that led you down this route you Uh, think
1: it's a great question because it's hard to know I think in my mind when I went over there and while I was over there I always wanted to try and play um i always knew i was le- later coming into the game but i also thought that gave me a bit of an advantage i was still fresh you know i hadn't been competing uh, for 10 years you know so, since i was eight uh, like I- i'd been competing for maybe five or six so i think i always felt like i tried to flip the narrative on its head and it gave you know try- tried to give me a bit more of an edge i was fresh i was you know but that being said i also know and i started to develop some knowledge at that time of how tough this sport can be um, and I think when an opportunity like that comes up when you're young as in the hitting partners a bit at Wimbledon, you, whether I was going to play or not I would have never turned that down you know looking back and um, sometimes I you know think oh should I have kind of just left it and done it later on or should I have carried on playing or whatever it was but at the time I was still in college and I was still competing it was just for me a great way to experience something so different and also you know to practice with the best players in the world. Like, if I take it from a selfish standpoint, I still wanted to play at that time. And why would I not go down the route of being able to practice with the likes of Djokovic and John Isner and all of these players? So I think, yeah, did it stop me from playing? Maybe, I'm not sure. But I think it just led me down another path, which I'm very grateful for happening because I think it's opened up so many opportunities. And I think I've found, definitely found my niche.
0: What was that experience like the first time going to Wimbledon? Was it eyes wide open, this is amazing? Was it kind of a reality check going against these guys or what did you think?
1: I think, yeah, it was a little bit of both. I think I was so consumed with the experience. I think I was probably a little bit naive to everything, which looking back now is a really good thing. I think sometimes in those situations, not thinking that much and just doing it, I think actually allowed me to just kind of take everything in. I think, in fact, it's funny, I think I'm not, I don't want to say I'm not a hitting partner anymore. I don't really do that too much anymore. I've kind of dived more into the, it's naturally led me into the coaching and coaching at that level. Um, but I think the more recent years I've done it, the harder I've actually found it, just purely because you know kind of how everything works. And sometimes when you're switched onto those things, it can increase the nerves a little bit. You know, I think it's it's a little bit like, you know, like a baby walking for the first time, they just do it, you know, they're not thinking about it, it's just happening, you know, and I think um, it was, yeah, I always felt like it was easier that way, but that being said, when you step on the court with, like I say, the likes of Naomi Osaka, that I was hitting with, uh, John Isner, Djokovic, all these types of players, you you then get that reality check of, whoa, like this is, this is it, this is amazing, but it was funny, I... I never felt like when we were practicing, I was off the level at all. I always felt pretty comfortable. And I think, you know, don't get me wrong, I had some, some not so great experiences with it, um, which I'm sure we'll come on to later in, in, in the podcast. But um, yeah, I, it was always, I never felt like I was out of place, which I think, because that was the case in the start, that definitely I grew with confidence as it went on.
0: And did you know straight away? Then you went back to college, did another few years, come straight out of college. Did you go straight into becoming a hitting partner, kind of full time?
1: yeah. So I, I think that opened up quite a lot of opportunities, as I'm sure you can imagine. I think I, I always said to said to myself, regardless of the offers that I got after that Wimbledon to be more of a hitting partner at other tournaments and for other players, I always said to myself that no, I want to finish. Finish my time at college I think I wanted to honor that um and I think I'm glad I did because it's so important that I you know finish that because I learned so much about myself after those experiences going back into the college system focusing more on myself having to be able to play focusing on the team um and then after yeah after college I yeah I think things just came up I was very much in a case of Let's just see what happens, kind of thing. I was happy trying to play a little bit. I was also more than happy at that time. I think if you know offers are coming up for me to be hitting partners at big tournaments uh, with certain players, and I'm I want to take them because I think it's an experience that I had really enjoyed at Wimbledon um, a few years ago. So I think, yeah, and I think then it just kind of happened. And I think when you're around that level and you realise what it takes, you then. It naturally gives you a bit of a reality check of where you're at in your game. And don't get me wrong, I think I could have done pretty well if I played, you know, the lower end of the better tennis, but I think it made me realise that I was probably never really at that at the level to be able to compete longer term at the high end of the game. It's you know, it's just too tough. So um for me personally, you know, there's many players that I'm sure are in my shoes that are still playing now and I have massive respect for them um, and I think it, it gives you so much more opportunities than just playing tennis so um,
0: yeah. How do you get business as a hitting coach or a hitting partner is that through agencies is it through the actual events themselves what way does that work?
1: Yeah it's it's honestly just networking connections I think when you're at those bigger tournaments and I know this sounds a bit cliche but if you're a likable person and if you're humble and you get along with people, I think when they're at that level, as long as you can play well, and we go down the hitting partner route, um, they latch on to that players. You know, they're travelling for 30, 40 weeks a year and they're spending so much time with their team, often more time with, with their team than their family. You have to have a personality that they get along with and that they enjoy being around. So I think just the networking element and uh, being in those big events just naturally brings up opportunities and then it's just all about selling yourself. Um, And, and I think, yeah, uh, you know, there's many people that would love to be in that position. And sometimes again, you've got to switch that off and go, right. Okay. It's fine. Like this is, this is where I'm at. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that would love to be able to do what I do, but I've got to just stay humble and just let things happen. And I think, it's like any self-employed work word of mouth is just huge. and I think if especially in that world, I think if a few players enjoy having you around and like your input, then they'll spread that to other players who will spread that to agents who will spread that to coaches and then all of a sudden you know you've you've got yourself in a position where you're well respected so.
0: I'm always fascinated by an athlete's preparation in any sport they have but when you're preparing to be a hitting partner is that different preparation to what you would be playing do you how do you prepare if you're going to be if you know let's say you take me for example you know you're going to be hitting with me how would you prepare to come hitting with me I know I'd be I wouldn't be obviously the the usual person or whatever
1: yeah no no it's a good question I think I mean ultimately I'm playing so my first and foremost I when I was a hitter and I was still playing, I would prepare just like I would prepare to practice myself. Um, You know, usual warm-ups, making sure that I've got everything that I need kind of thing. I guess the only difference is that when I step on the court, it's not about me in that sense. It's about what I need to do to help the player. And I think a lot of that involves chatting with the coaches and and understanding what they want out of the practice for their player. Um, And then... I was very lucky that it got to a point I built up some really good relationship with some players that they would sometimes want feedback from me direct as to how the ball is coming off their strings and impacting me. Because I think almost in those certain situations, not all the time, but sometimes, my feedback can be more valuable than the coaches because I'm the one that's actually practising with them so I can feel everything. Um, And I think when you build up relationships with people, with the players, sorry, that's also something that they're looking for. You know, they're looking for the feedback of like, what do you think? How does it feel when I put you in this position? What are you struggling with? What do you like? Um, so a lot of it actually within the preparation is when you're on the court, you're constantly, you know, chatting to the coaches, chatting to the players as to how they're feeling and just making them feel like, you know, that my feedback is valuable. Um and I think that's something that I try to do quite early on. because I think that it almost sets you apart a little bit from other people because I think then you're not just hitting with them. You're also very subtly giving some feedback as well. Um, but yeah, in regards to the preparation, it's, you know, it's very... I mean, there was a period where if I was with a player consistently for a week, 10 days, then you'd ulti- you'd look at their opponents and you know, when you're at that level, like if I'm with Federer and he's playing the Dahls, I don't really need to, I know Al Nadal's going to play. You know, I don't need to suddenly look up someone's name on YouTube and go, All right, who's Rafael Nadal? Like, how does he play? So you get an idea before going into the practice, probably what they're going to ask of you. Um, and yeah, so obviously at that level, it becomes a little bit easier to know what, what they're going to expect.
0: I'll never forget the clip of, there's so many clips of Federer, but I'll never forget the clip where he challenges the umpire and says no that's impossible because of the spin of the ball and when they re- reviewed it on the video he was right because it was the spin I think it I think it was it was he was saying that the spin was it was an incorrect call because the spin wouldn't have allowed it to bounce or something like that uh, can you give us a bit of a, a a story about him that we might not have heard of but I'm looking for exclusive reading here Mike so pressure's on to give me something juicy here oh. about Federer.
1: oh wow um exclusive put me on put me under pressure um I'm not sure. I'm sure something might come to mind in a little bit, but I think the one thing that I found with him, and I think some people might, will already know this, some people won't, but he almost doesn't care about himself. He cares more about who he's with. So, like, I remember the first time we practised together, um, it was actually at Queen's Club. So, it was at the ATP Finals in 2019, which is based in London at the O2 Arena. Now, if anyone knows London well queen's club where they hold an event pre-wimbledon is on the other side of london to the o2 arena so to get there is a nightmare like it's a it's a it's an absolute nightmare it takes like well it took me on multiple occasions an hour and a half just to travel over the other side of london for the traffic and everything he just likes to practice well away from from the arena because obviously it's roger federer he just you know wants his own space and i remember getting there and and in my head, when he walks on the court and we have a drink break, I'm like, I just want to ask him questions. You know, I've heard he's such a great guy and, and I just want to ask him all these questions, you know, you know, childhood, like, idol and everything. I couldn't get a word in Edgeways. I couldn't ask him anything because all he wanted to do was ask me questions. Where are you from? Who? What football team do you support? Do you have any brothers and sisters? Do you play any other sports? Just, you know, and I, I'm thinking to myself, like, It's the most surreal thing that someone of that level, not just in tennis, but in world sport, actually doesn't really want me to chat to him. He just wants to know more about me because I think it just sums it just summed him up. And I think that it's not very much of an exclusive, but I think he's so humble and so loving that I think it's why so many people adore him and always will. You know, they always will. I mean, I always remember him even at Wimbledon this year when he sat in the box. I can't remember for what match he was watching. It might have been opening of centre court the first round, but just the, I remember not being on centre court, but being in the players lounge and just hearing centre court erupt. And I'm thinking, oh, it must be Djokovic walking out onto centre court or whoever. And it wasn't. I look back that evening on TV and it was actually Roger just getting a standing of ovation for minutes. And I think, yeah, like there's, there's something about him that I think he transcends sport in so many, so many ways. And I think just being able to, you know, have him ask me a load of questions was, about, was yeah quite a surreal moment, I think.
0: Wow. Yeah, that clip is brilliant, and it's funny when I when I I was only joking with exclusives, so don't worry. But it was more yeah. like that 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 story is like I was looking for something that just encapsulates character away from ability, and I think that story does that. And you can tell these, you can always tell with athletes, you know, who's a genuine guy and who isn't. And to hear that and and kind of, I would have always always such a genuine guy to hear that is incredible because you would never, you know, of someone of that stature to to just have so much interest in the hitting partner. Like that's it's always the small details. Out of interest, what kind of questions were you hoping to ask him? And did you ever get the chance to ask him?
1: No, I I did eventually. (laughs) I did. um, Just as usual, just there's certain matches that I, you know, as a kid that I watched the 2008 Wimbledon final, even the 2009 one when he played Andy Roddick. um, I'm sure it was the final. I'm probably getting that wrong now. But just, just questions about that. Like, how is he feeling? How does he deal with those moments? Like, you know, what is it like to ultimately not have loads of privacy um and and what me- i think the one question that always i remember that I, I do remember asking him but i now can't remember what he said Was just like what what makes him so different you know what what puts like puts him apart from from everyone else you know other than the fact that he's unbelievably gifted you know he's so talented in so many ways and no one no one I think can argue with that he's just incredibly talented um and I just remember I remember him saying something along the lines of like I just I, I've never known that I've had talent like I, I don't see it as talent I just I just play I just and I and it sounds so simple doesn't it I just play but I think there's so much within that answer that I took in a sense of he just plays the sport he just plays tennis he said i'm i don't i can't remember how old he was at the time probably late 30s when i was spent a bit of time with him but he said i still feel like i'm 8 years old just doing what i love and i think he said something like apart from my bones are starting to hurt a little bit more and kind of thing and i think it's just that is why all these players still play like you know andy murray djokovic like okay yes djokovic is Phenomenal! His body is holding up so well for someone that's now probably coming more to the end of his career. That they just play because they love the sport, and it's this obsession with trying to be better, just always be better, and just this obsession with you know the feelings that tennis gives them, the highs and the lows. I think you know I can't tell you how much it would have hurt Djokovic to lose that Wimbledon final to to Alcaraz. It would have killed him. It would have just absolutely just And, you know, this guy's won 20 odd Grand Slams, arguably the best player that's ever played the sport. You know, got a beautiful family. Money probably isn't really too much of an issue to him anymore. Yet it would have still really, really hurt him. And I think that kind of summed that up when he then played him again in like a four hour match in Cincinnati uh, just before the US Open. And he's there again doing the same thing, just like putting everything on the line as a 36, 37-year-old who's coming to the end of his career against a young Spanish guy that is so hungry, you know, Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, murrays all of these players, they love that feeling. And I think those are the feelings which I think a lot of the public can and can't relate to at the same time. They can in a sense of it's just so admirable and they kind of are in awe of it because I think a lot of people probably uh, are like, it's just incredible, so...
0: Is that when you look across the players you just named and anyone at that, that, that level? is that what separates the great players from the rest of the pack? Is it the obsession, the love for the game, that kind of fight, desire to just to really just win? Is that the kind of the three things you see as the as the pattern, or are there any other similar characteristics?
1: Yeah, I think they would definitely be up there. I think you know yeah they've they've got something. I often can't describe it. I say this to a lot of people. They have just got something a little bit different. And and that's probably like a terrible answer for a podcast because you're probably looking for <laughs> so, so much more information than that. But I think uh, yeah, there's there's something they've just got it's something an, it's a little intangible. bit different. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you no, know, this I, I don't one thing I don't want to do because I'm very lucky to coach at that level now is is I don't want that to be disrespectful to all the other players that play because I cannot tell you how hard every single player, professional tennis player, works. You know, anyone that is playing at Grand Slam level has, you know, done something very special to to be able to be in and around that scene and works incredibly hard and dedicates their life to their sport. Um, And and I really, truly believe that. Um, and, And I think... Yeah, but they they have something just a little bit different in the moments where they really need to. They can find an extra gear and just find something that maybe some players struggle to a little bit more. Um, And and for me, it's the consistency. I think that's that's the one thing. I think, you know, we can all, you know, say we can all, everyone can go and win an, an incredible match and be remembered for that. But can you be remembered for doing that? Day in, day out for 16 to 20 years, you know, at the highest level in some of the hardest conditions. And I think that's what separates the likes of Federer Adar Djokovic, Serena Williams, especially. That's what separates themselves, those types of players from maybe, from maybe their competitors.
0: And it brings up this kind of, I'd nearly ask every coach, but when you get to like, we're talking about the one percent of the one percent. Are players at that level born with ability? Do they develop it? Is it? It's always goes. It, it's like this age old argument of are a great players born or, or made? Mike, I'm putting you on the spot here with all these questions. <laughs>
1: oh, I, I actually, yeah. When you when you sent me over some some questions, I I saw that one and I laughed because I, I I don't think if I'm being honest, I don't think players are born that way I think they're the product of their environment I don't don't get me wrong I think there's some players that have some natural gifts from a physical standpoint especially you know I think Al at 16 years old was almost like a mini professional already and but I think a lot of it is the environment that they're put in and how they're allowed to grow and how they can almost, like, you know, develop their beliefs. Now, Alcraz has been around Juan Carlos Ferrero since a very, very young age, um, who is a great tennis player, you know, one of the best in the world in his generation, and was incredible when he played. So to have someone like that around him from a young age would allow, he would have allowed, you know, Ferrero to kind of construct his beliefs and 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 allow him to to nurture him in a way that will hopefully give him the best possible chance to be you know, a great player which he already is he already won two grand slams and i think so i i i don't think you're born great but i think that there's certain things that within the environment that you're put in from a young age which, which allows you to be great um and I, and i don't just think that's from athletes i think that's from anyone that's looking to achieve achieve high performance in in their industry coaches business people whatever that might be i think you're the you are the product of your environment i quite i strong quite strongly believe that i think yeah the environment that you're put in in your life will often dictate maybe how you view the world and how you can make make changes to what to what you believe in
0: very interesting i wanted to ask you as well kind of the biggest misconception of elite sports people doesn't have to be specifically tennis players or kind of the reality like you mentioned there the grind that goes in away from the lights you know i'm I'm fascinated by what goes in away from the tv cameras that we don't see as fans that you know we're only all we see is the big performances you know the big wins on the big days but we don't see the hours and hours and thousands of hours going in behind the scenes what's the reality or kind of the biggest misconception about elite athletes from your perspective
1: I think this—it's sometimes mentioned, but not mentioned enough. They're human beings; they're the exact same as you or, you or I. You know, they—they have feelings; they feel the same things. If you think that—I mean, I mean, I'm currently part of um, Tamara Zidansek's team. She's been as high as twenty-two in the world, semi-finals of the French Open. Um, and if you think for any one second that when she's in the back end of a match, And it's really tight, and there's loads of people watching. You think she's not nervous? You're deluded. She's feeling the exact same things that you or I would feel if we were in that position at any level. You know, they they have feelings. They don't always enjoy the travelling part of it. They love spending time at home. They want to have a family. Yeah, they're they're just normal people. And I think the one thing that that they have that, that it's just different to, to your eyes that their job is just a little bit different. <laughs> they're just exceptionally good at their job. And it's different to, you know, working a nine to five or, you know, whatever that might be. And that's not taking anything away from that. Everyone has their own ambitions and goals in life. Theirs just happens to be a little bit weird <laughs> in that sense. It's just, you know, athletes, athletes are like that. They're, you know, they're very switched on and they're incredibly obsessive with certain things but they are just normal human beings that are just looking to achieve a dream that they've set out to achieve since a very young age and I think that sometimes is overlooked and I think because it's overlooked we can sometimes put them on pedestals where they don't want to be on pedestals you know they want to just be treated as everyone else but they also understand that that's just not the case You you know they understand that but I think yeah the, the biggest misconception is the fact that they are just human beings that are looking to do their job and achieve great things
0: next time i interview a professional athlete i'll just say we're the same you just have a weird job <laughs> <laughs> See
1: what me saying a weird job probably yeah it's, uh, i probably shouldn't have said that but they just you know they they just do something that i think a lot of people from a young young age you know dream of doing but they've turned that dream into a reality but they started out just like you or I at school, like wanting to dream big, wanting to win Wimbledon, wanting to win a World Cup. They just so happen to be in a position where they've maybe got a little bit of a better chance to do it than you or I. And I think, yeah, I'm very privileged and lucky to be able to help someone, and hopefully continue to help someone in my career to to, to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's actually interesting you say. Um, well, your your answer is they're human. Um, I drew Hanlon, who was an MBA skills coach and he's employed by you know the best of the best in the nba and he said the exact same i said drew what's the biggest misconception he was like they're all humans you know i'm talking to the guys after practice they're worried about this or that like he obviously didn't get into it but it just reminds you that at the end of the day as as you said they're we're all the same when you get to that level and when we're talking about nerves and and kind of that that mental aspect of the game at the elite level is competing more mental or a physical challenge what do you think
1: Oh, that's a good question. I'm gonna I'm gonna almost like twist it a bit and say that it's a bit of everything. <laughs> and I know that's maybe not the answer that we wanted, but I think I, I don't think you can be I don't think you can be at that level and almost go, Oh, it's all mental, it's all physical, it's all tactical, it's all technical. Because I think when you get to that level, you have to rely on Multiple different skill sets for different situations. And I think, you know, I I always say tennis is a little bit like chess, like you're trying to find one move ahead, and that might require a physical task. There might be a physical task. You might have to kind of say, right, for the next five minutes, the body's going to hurt here. That might require a mental task, the awareness of how the opponent's feeling and the awareness of how you're feeling. It might mean that I've got to execute a tactic. So I've got to be able to do something from a tactical standpoint, which will then naturally influence my technique because your technique will influence the tactic you're looking to do. So I I think, again, we go back to misconceptions. I think a lot of people, and we'll take tennis, view tennis players as these freakish, skillful athletes that are just, Oh my God. Whereas actually they're having to pick what type of attribute they're using in every single scenario. And it's not always a skillful one. It's not always a mental one. Because I'm telling you, mentally, sometimes when they're on court, they feel shocking. They feel terrible. So they've got to rely on other things, you know. And I think, you know, if I'm if I'm playing against Djokovic and I'm feeling terrible and my head's down, then my mental skill set is probably not being utilised right now. So I've got to try and find ways to utilise other things so I keep my head afloat and I can still compete. So, I, look... I do believe that your mentality has a massive influence on on how you conduct yourself and on how you ultimately get through matches and win at that level. But I also believe that there's multiple other skill sets that have to be utilised um, in order to be great at what you do. I hope that makes sense. I haven't, yeah.
0: No, it, it does. And do you know what I what I love about this question is it it there's not a right answer. Yeah. Everyone is different. Everyone has their own approach. Like if I asked the top ten tennis players, everyone would probably have a different answer about what what you know, and it's just fascinating to hear the different approaches. And sometimes it resonates with people. And you can think of scenarios, in, in any sport that you're thinking of, where it's more physical or more tactical, or this piece of magic. And I love what you said there about chess, or about tennis being a game of chess. You're thinking one move ahead. You're. It's again. It's just this other element of the game of sport that you don't think of is that kind of logical piece as well as tactical of kind of keeping on track. It sounds exhausting. I have to say, <laughs> trying yeah, to keep up with, think... with all those things
1: yeah i think like it tennis tennis challenges your present moment thinking big time but i do think that you have to almost kind of think right i'm in this situation right now where do i want to get to where, like when i I'll kind of use it as checkpoints i think one of the best one of the best bit, bits of advice that i can often give players that are maybe struggling within a session or within a match you know, on the WTA tour, you can coach now a little bit. And I'll always say, win the next two minutes. And I don't mean that from an actual right, you've got to win more points than your opponent. I mean, in the sense of, find yourself in a better position in two minutes' time than you were two minutes before. And I think if you can win the next two minutes for the next three hours, you'll win the match. And it's those small increments as you go along. And I think often tennis, and this isn't just tennis players, it's athletes in general, when they see... Sometimes there's problems and they're this and that. They're, they're, their mind always goes to the bigger picture. Oh, I've lost the match now. Oh, I'm out of the tournament. As opposed to going, okay, you could be if you keep thinking like that. But if you win the next two minutes and you do that for the next two or three hours, all of a sudden you'll get yourself in a position where you're probably more likely giving the best possible chance to win the match. So it is like a game of chess and you've got to challenge yourself in the present moment thinking, but you also have to try and find yourself in a position where you can see what you're looking to do down the line as well.
0: That reminds me of a story um, of an elite player in Ireland. It's we, we don't know. It's not professional, but it's amateur Gaelic football. And what his name is Tom Parsons. And what he did was he had a watch on. Now there'd be a big screen with a time timer, but he used to have his his watch under his glove or something, and he'd say, "Right, I'm going to win the next five minutes," and he'd just do that for the sixty minutes. And that that story just brought me back to that. I read it about two years ago, and it just again, as you say. You're kind of, you're present, but you're not present because you think of the next step. But that just kind of grounds an athlete more so than probably thinking of this. Oh, my God, I have to try get over through the next few hours and win the whole thing.
1: 100%.
0: I'm interested in confidence and developing confidence. And there was a great quote I had from an Irish an Irish sports psychologist named Kevin McManaman. And um, he said, it was a great quote on a webinar, he said, we're so afraid to be cocky, we refuse to be confident. And it's come up a lot of times within coaching or listening to athletes, particularly, I think Irish people are terrible. We never, you know, we, we have such a bad mentality, we never give ourselves credit. I'm sure it's the same in other places, but how do you balance having confidence, getting a player confident in their ability, but they're, they're still humble enough and they're not arrogant that they ignore teaching or, or avoid learning?
1: It's a great question. I am um, I try and, before I answer this, I try and separate belief and confidence because I think they're two very different things. I think belief is that deep-rooted feeling that you have inside you that you know deep down what you're looking to do, how you're going to achieve it, and you're going to really want to try and achieve greatness. I then think confidence fluctuates in and out of your game all the time if we take tennis player. You know, it's like you're going to wake up some mornings and you're going to feel great. You're going to feel confident. Wow, oh, feel great. Like, awesome. I mean, yeah. Then you're going to wake up some mornings and it could be two days later. Oh, God, I'm a bit tired today. Like, So that fluctuates all the time. And I think that's your confidence levels. You know, that that can increase if you start to play well at the start of a tournament. That can kind of increase and boom. But then in tennis, the next week, if you lose first round, all of a sudden your confidence might dip. But your belief system is what will keep you going over a number of years, over a number of months, over a number of weeks. So I think for me, I try and develop the belief system more than I do confidence, because I think if you have a strong belief system, and that happens over time, naturally your confidence might start to shift and you might start to, you know, you know start to believe in what you're looking to do day to day a little bit more. In regards to like, yeah, like I'm. I like it when tennis players show a little bit of arrogance. Personally, I think you have to have that. I think it's such a dog eat dog mentality out there, especially because it's an individual sport. I tr- but I think it's it's understanding the personality first. I think that's the number one thing. Understand the person first is my one of my biggest philosophies as a coach. Um, because if I can understand the person. I'll know when I have mini windows to coach. And I know that they'll be receiving that information. I think it's a misconception that if you've got a two-hour tennis session, I'm going to be coaching full-on for two hours. I think players will want to just kick me off the court. They'll go absolutely mental. But I know that I'm going to maybe have three or four windows within those two hours where I can really harness what I'm looking to deliver. And I know they're going to be really listening and this can fluctuate between personality types i might have someone that actually wants a load of information for the first 30 minutes of the session so then the next hour and a half they can try and put that into play and i can just kind of tap in here and there whereas i might have someone that only wants me to talk and search. so look i think it's it's understanding the athlete and the person first that can then you can harness then you know how that works because there's some people i used to coach a very good player a junior player that would almost work hard if i told them they couldn't do something so i'd be like there's no way you're going to do that I'd start a session zero chance you complete this task this session that motivates them you know so so and then and then they like that confident arrogant side comes out of i'm going to show you like i'm going to show you i can do it Whereas there's some people that I need to give a lot more like encouragement. Look, you're great at this. Come on, let's keep working, keep working. And that then gives them that arrogant, confident side. And you see them kind of walking around. So, yeah, I think it's just about trying to understand different personality types and understanding, you know, what makes them tick a little bit more.
0: OK, I have two questions on what you said there. But the the bit about getting to know the players, again, just reminds me of another it, coaching is so universal but again another hurling it's basically the other version of the amateur sport getting Gaelic football and obviously the team sport's a bit different but there's a great clip it's half time and the manager is going around his team and his individual approach to every player is different some players is having a quiet word in the ear the other he has the arm around the shoulder the other ones he smacks in the back of the helmet he's grabbing them by the jersey getting them ready and it, how do you how do you gonna get in under their skin and get to know a personality when let's say I, I start working with you, how do you go through those steps to figure out the windows that you can kinda of tick me over with?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I with most people, I I'll when if we chat, so let's say you wanted to work with me and you know we're setting some, you know, goals, whatever, I'd almost put all of that to one side and go, Right, what's your mum's name? What does your mum like? How's your dad? Have you got any brothers or sisters? which football team do you support? So I I like humanize the conversation because I think what every athlete will do is every athlete at some point in their career would have had a bad experience with a coach. So they always will have a guard that is an invisible that ultimately as a coach I've got to try and bring down to allow them to let me in. So I'll always try and humanize the conversation first and just have a chat. Like who are you? Because ultimately I'm going to be spending so much time with the person as well as the athlete. I want to know the person first. And what I have found is if I have those types of conversations, sometimes it works immediately. Sometimes it takes me a little while to, for them to be more receptive to those types of conversations. Um, if I have those types of conversations that it, it then allows me to get in to their personality and kind of go, right, how does this person work? How how am I going to get them to to perform at the highest possible level and improve and develop? Um, I often find sharing like a difficult moment in my life also really helps because again it kind of shows that I can show vulnerability. You know, I'm I'm not this like coach that's gonna you know, you know, sunglasses on, hat on, act all tough all the time because it's just not how we are. I'm a human as well. Like I, you know, thought. So, and that often will then open up them, right? like, actually, you know what? I've been struggling. I had a really tough period with this. And then I'll I'll tell them something that I'm really proud of. Just, I've done this and I'm really happy, you know. So then you, you cut, you're then sharing human emotion. So then all of a sudden they feel like that you're there for the person as well as the tennis player. So I think that, for me, massively, massively helps, yeah, like develop a relationship first. Because it's like anything – if 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 I'm wanting to coach coach you and you want me to you know you want to work with me, if if I if I come in and I almost go right, um, you're doing this 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 and this and you'll win a tournament. You're like well, what? What do you mean? Like you don't even know a name. Like so, it's 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 one of those. It's, you've got to develop that trust and that relationship before you're going to take on board anything that I I, I say. Yeah, and and that then maybe changes a little bit. If you've got a really good track record, then the person might just go right. Just what do you know? But even then, like you've got to still build that some form of trust and a relationship in order for, in order for things to work out as a as a, in a relationship in a coaching relationship. Mm.
0: What you're saying there reminds me of. Roger Federer asking you all those questions
1: yeah yeah
0: and it's funny isn't it like what he was probably doing like he was obviously being I'm not saying he wasn't being really nice he obviously was but he was also developing or getting to know you and developing a trust with you it was like can I trust Mike
1: do I know him you know it's funny. yeah but it's funny isn't it how not not once he asked you know how good you backhand how good you forehand how good you serve how do you move like it's like, You know, it's not about that because ultimately if if you make me feel comfortable and you make me feel like I can trust you and I'm, you know, then all of a sudden my level gets better. Just And I haven't even, you know, and that's how it often works is I haven't even spoken about a four on a backhand with some of the players that I've worked with, but I've made them feel like they can trust me. And then once you get that, that's when it's my job to then Basically, with my coaching expertise to go, right, what do I see from a technical, technical, physical and mental standpoint? And how can I develop this person and this player to then reach the goals that they want to try and achieve?
0: The other question I had from that was about um, your belief versus confidence. really like that because it comes across as what I'm understanding from what you're saying is confidence is fleeting, belief is rock you know it's the rock salad yeah. how do you what techniques do you use to develop that belief in a player is there anything in particular you find helpful or or good
1: uh it's a great question I, I do think again it goes back to like understanding personality um and understanding what are they like in the most stressful moments in a tennis match what what is their like stressor some people if they get really stressed and nervous they'll hit harder some people will hit softer some people will get the head down some people will relish those moments um so i think for me it's it's just trying to figure out again like how am i going to be able to coach the person before the player it's, again it's a, it's a terrible answer for a podcast but it is a little bit of a feel thing <laughs> we, we always as coaches as players we in tennis especially we always talk about feel how does this feel like how you know so i think Yeah, I'm actually, I'll be honest, as a younger coach, I'm still figuring those things out. Like, I think my, you don't really, I believe anyway, start developing really strong philosophies until you've probably coached for 10 years or so. And you're like, you know what? And I think I'm still, in my head, I've probably got a good idea. And when, when I'm really strong on those, we can do another podcast and I can give you some really, really good information on that. But I think I'm still trying to figure out in my head what works, what doesn't with those types of conversations because I've had many that just haven't worked and many that have. So I do believe currently that it is a little bit of a feel thing and I just have to kind of guide them through that. But there's certain things, certain traits that maybe a player would show that for me goes, right, okay, maybe they don't really believe or maybe they are just having a bit of a bad spell. And I think any good coach will tell you that once you've then, once you've then identified that, it's then trying to find unique ways, which is going to help the individual, yeah, to then increase the belief system. I don't often try. I don't try and make a player more confident because, like I said, it fluctuates. It just it's so it's so different. Like Djokovic, everyone thinks oh, he's always confident. He's not. I can tell you that right now. He's not confident at all. But what gets him through is his ability to believe in what he's doing, and I think. A lot of belief comes from, you know, sounds obviously really obvious, but if I suddenly make someone's forehand three, four times better, it's going to naturally increase the belief system. If they get more information on how to um, deal with uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and they put that into practice and they see it works, that's going to increase the belief system. So I think, yeah, just, just me being able to articulate what needs working on and they can naturally see that improvement will have a have a big big increase on their belief system.
0: You mentioned that you're still developing your philosophies um are there any other important um principles that you emphasize when you're coaching players at all?
1: Another really good question. Um I I'm all about like marginal gains. You hear this a lot in British cycling. Um I've listened to a few podcasts and, and read a few books on that and I think understanding that performance is just as important, if not more important than the outcome. Understanding, like, breaking it down. I break it down into two things, and I think this is kind of what I'm quite strong on at the moment, is I coach the tennis player and I coach the performer. The tennis player is, how do I get the ball from A to B? You know, tactically, what am I looking to do? From a technical standpoint, how can we develop? That's the tennis player. That's like, that's the the nitty gritty of the detail that's needed. The performer is, what's my body language like? How am I responding to adversity? What? How am I talking to myself? Um, and I, I try and keep them quite separate because I think the tennis player gets developed in the weeks where you have more time to work on because it is probably a little bit more, you need a bit more headspace to be able for the player to do that. And the performer is pretty much all I talk about when we're at tournaments. I'm not going to have a massive influence on how they're going to hit a forehand when we're at tournaments. But what I can have a big influence on is how they're thinking and feeling and how they can use that to help them ultimately win tennis matches. So I think at the moment, well, not at the moment, it has been for a number of years now, but I, I'm a big believer that we've got to separate the performer and the, I guess the athlete can be in any sport. So if you're a swimmer, there's technical things that you're probably going to have to work on. But then when it comes to the race, that's done and dusted. You've got to put your belief and trust in that. And you've now got to focus on as a performer, how am I going to be able to put myself in the best possible position to try and do the best I can in, in winning this race?
0: Wow, that's brilliant. I'm, I'm going to rob that. and I'm going to give you all the credit because <laughs> they're going to say that's not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you, aside from injury, Uh, As someone who, unfortunately, I've gone through loads of injury and I've seen players go through plenty of injuries and it's unfortunately career-ending injuries for some people. Apart from that, what's the biggest barrier to someone reaching their own potential or goals, whatever that might be? Is there any particular obstacles you see as patterns in in, in young players or at any age, really?
1: That's a a brilliant question. I, I think, like you kind of said it there, I think it's quite different between maybe more senior professionals and younger tennis players, I think younger younger tennis players it's that it's that gap between like expectation and reality. I think is the biggest killer um for younger tennis players. I think if you've if the gap is too big between the reality and your expectation, you're always gonna feel frustrated all the time. It's just, it's, and it almost is going to get to the point where then you're just gonna stop playing and you're not gonna wanna play i think that's one of the biggest things that i think really affects tennis players and their ability to achieve what they want to achieve with with um with the more senior professionals i honestly think it's just being able to deal with pressure moments the players that can deal with those pressure moments is uh, just thrive and I think that increased the belief system, knowing that you're going to get through matches under pressure or you're going to deal with pressure because when you're at that level, there's not much that separates, separates not just tennis players, athletes in general. Um, it's who who can produce and execute under pressure in those key moments. So I think those are the two things that I think stop younger and more senior players reach their potential. I think that when you get to you know, the high-end, everyone works hard. Everyone, you know, is trying to develop. There's obviously a few people that are just absolute freaks that don't put any work in and just so happen to be unbelievable. I won't name names, um, but, you know, they're just incredible, incredible tennis players and, yeah, all of a sudden don't need to work hard. But I am a big believer that they get found out eventually. Um, So, yeah, I, I think the gap between expectation and reality for younger players and then finding ways and different tools to be able to deal with pressure for more of the senior players.
0: I love the way it's different for each age I just think that's interesting.
1: Yeah and 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 look it's it I mean, there's definitely a crossover of course there is you know like there's going to be some professionals that maybe their expectation doesn't meet their reality and some younger players that just really struggle to deal with pressure I, I think I think age—it's very cliche—but age is just a number. You know, there's there's tennis players that are 15, 16 that are playing professional tennis. Their their journey is just accelerated. Um, so you have to again—it goes back to my one of my strong philosophies that you have to coach the person and not the player first. Because the the person—it doesn't matter how old they are—you can't you can't coach Alcaraz who's what 20 and then coach. 20 year old that isn't as good maybe in the same way you just you just can't his, his, his his it's accelerated his you know his progression has just naturally accelerated so it is so important that you have to coach the person first um you know i've i've given those answers because those are probably the more common traits that i see that stop people from players from reaching their potential but god like i if i'm coaching someone that's 16 and 25 in the world I'm not going to be coaching someone then um, the exact same way that's 16 and the best in their country. Like it's just so it's 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 a little bit of a feel thing again, which <laughs> I come back to a little bit.
0: Interesting. I wanted to ask you about upskilling as a coach, and um, obviously data analytics and technology have come in. But how do you who do you learn from Mike? Who do you look to? Who do you what what resources do you use to improve yourself as a coach?
1: That's a really good question. I'm for people that know me. I am massive on this. I I love harsh criticism. I love being told that I'm not good at something because it drives me to get better at something. I'm always looking to try and develop. So um, honestly, a bit of everything. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I try to read as much as I can. Um, I reach out to a lot of senior coaches that I know are good at certain things. So I think coaches, like I said at the start, we have our own niche. There's certain coaches that are really good from a technical standpoint just see the game so differently. I actually spent lockdown, the the very first lockdown, speaking to lots of different people, jotting lots of things down and trying to develop myself. So I think, yeah, it's it's, it's more so just reaching out to people that I know have got a lot of experience and can offer, you know, different ways of thinking. Um, I'm very lucky that the academy where I base myself, we've got some really good senior coaches that have worked with some very, very good players. And they've helped me as a younger coach develop, start to kind of think about developing my philosophies and giving me some really good advice on how to spot different things. Um, But again, it goes back to that networking element of trying to take little bits from everyone and then put my own twist on it. And and, because, you know, I I don't want to just take and reuse. I think it's so important that I have my own identity as a coach. But a lot of the things that I'll be saying will be things from what people have given me because I really like them. and yeah, I think from an at- analytic standpoint, I've worked with a few companies with like top players that have used them. I think they're great. I think they're really good. I'm very fortunate to be quite close with um, Mike James, um, who's who's been an, an analyst on the ATP WTA tour for a, yeah a number of years now. is very successful, and yeah, he's he's obviously spoken on a few things. And there's a few other other people that I've yeah that I've Kind of reached out to that I know. And I I think analytics is great, but I do believe that it's a supplement to what a coach sees and feels again. Um, I think it's hard to rely solely on it because I do think there's so many ebbs and flows in tennis matches that if we solely rely on stats, we then don't again see the momentum shift in matches. You know, a stat doesn't tell me how the other person's feeling down the other end. And I'm a big believer in that. That that's you know important that we kind of switch onto that as well. But I love analytics, and I think they're a massive supplement to a coach, especially when you're working at the higher level.
0: I want to actually get in about books and podcasts. Obviously, I hope you've listened to this one. Uh, <laughs> but any particular <laughs> any particular uh, books or podcasts? I presume high performance. You gave that. I think a bit of a nod earlier. What ones have you? Would you recommend to any listeners here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I was actually quite lucky over the Wimbledon period. I saw. Um, high performance live and actually Jake Humphrey went to my high school he's from where I'm from so I managed to have a quick chat with him on things and I think what they've done is in- incredible you know they've got some amazing people on and yeah um, at the academy we actually have a podcast called Control the Controllables um, it is I'm 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 biased because I work at the academy but Dan Kiernan who is academy director is yeah is a brilliant host and we've actually just had Andy Murray on um in our 200th episode and there's some brilliant oh, is this is the
0: one uh sorry to interrupt was this the one that was sent to the coping the coaching group the opening yes. coaching forum yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 yeah. so we've had i mean obviously there's a lot of tennis people on there but it's more than that it, it just talks it talks kind of including the name it's controlling the controllables. it's you know, focusing on what you can t- control and, and how you can use that to help you develop, you know, as a coach, as a analyst, as a player. So there's some really, really good people on there. Um, so, yeah, I, I've listened to a number of those. I've listened to, oh, what other ones are there? High performance is a big one. I've listened to a lot of those. I, I'm, my personality type is very much, if I find a podcast, I'll listen to all of them before I even think about listening to, listen to anything else. So, and obviously, as you know, there's a lot of podcasts on the high performance and also our ones. So those are the two key ones, I think. I've there's some episodes, like there's an Eddie Howe episode for high performance, which I've really resonated with. Um Frank Lampard. There's yeah, book from a book standpoint. I haven't read probably as many as I should, but um the one that I'm reading now is actually Wim Hof. Um, the breathing techniques. It's it's really interesting. Really interesting, a different type you know, different way to try and find that inner uh, peace is probably not the, the right word, but you know, finding different ways to get yourself back into the present moment like we've spoken about. Um there's one that I really want to read called Legacy, um, which I haven't yet. James Kerr. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just bought it. yeah, 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 yeah. So I've been I've been actually, yeah, I've been we actually um, where I, I live, uh, we had a, we had it. We had the book, and we, me and my girlfriend, we were trying to find find it, and we just couldn't find it anywhere. And I was getting so annoyed because I knew it was in here somewhere. Um, and yeah, so that's one that I really want to read. I, I read a lot of autobiographies. I've read Johnny Wilkinson's. I've read Nadal's. I've read Stephen Gerrard. I, I'm I just like reading about performance and high performance and understanding how different athletes tick and what's the common traits. Because I think as a coach, my job is to try and tap into what what is high performance for different people that I coach because it's very different to different people. So I guess it's a little bit like the analytics. I use books as a supplement to help me get into the headspace of players that I'm trying to develop.
0: Uh, obviously, you probably listened to Johnny Wilkinson's episode on high performance. I have, yes. Yeah, I have to. I still, I have listened to it a few times, but I still have to. I haven't gathered my thoughts on it. But there's two really good episodes. Uh, Suzy Ma, who is a uh owns tropical skincare or something, okay. wouldn't think of high performance, but amazing. And uh, Mel Marshall, she's Adam Peaty's swim coach. Oh yeah, the two of them really stood out. If you haven't listened to them yet, yeah. really, really good. Um, have you ever watched uh Ted Lasso?
1: Yeah, that is really freaky. I've literally been watching it over the last two weeks. When I was in New York at the US Open, um, I started it and the player that I coached Tomara, she was like, Oh, you've yeah, you need to you need to watch it. You need to watch it. And I'm like, Oh, all right, okay. And I'm hooked. I'm like, Yeah, it's, it's amazing. So good. Absolutely love it. Like and what I love about it is there's so many stories within stories, like within it like it's not just like it's obviously obvious to oh, it's just about football it's about you know it's funny it's you know comedy but there's so many like it's very real is what I've found like I think I'm very lucky that my my stepdad has played a relatively big role in as a doctor at Norwich City Football Club where I'm originally from Okay, and so I've been in and around the club a little bit watching a few like the under 23s like matches at their training ground and so you get you obviously when you go there quite a bit and you know, you see him doing what he's doing and the stories that he tells, you um you get a feel for the environment that, that they're in and, and the struggles maybe that some players have. And I, I and I was saying the other night that it just fit when I watch it it feels like I'm at home because I can I can really relate to some of the feelings that these coaches that these players have because it's it's hard. <laughs> there's so many emotions that I think is, is flying around in each episode and it, it yeah for me it feels very real in a weird way because it's obviously you know it's comedy based as well but yeah it's it's, it's really good watch
0: yeah when you said when you were talking about uh, belief and confidence you just reminded me of their sign with believes I was yeah like, I have to ask them yeah have you seen the dart scene yet have you watched that yes. it's season one or season yes. two. That's Yeah, that's my favorite scene that is like the show for me i think oh just the yeah like yeah. sometimes um when there's uh, whenever someone talks about being curious I just I, all i think is be curious not judgmental it's it's That's, funny it's just kind of sat with me like yeah and i'm not
1: the older the older i get and the more i coach the more i think being curious becomes so relevant because you you i find anyway i start to judge less because so many different people have been through so many different things and are thinking so many different things that all one time, that so hard for me to judge someone that doesn't just think how I think, because ultimately my job, and I've said this throughout the whole podcast, my job is to get into the psyche of the players that I coach, whether I agree with it or not, you know, and I've got to try and find ways to tap into their personality to try and get them to develop and get better. So I think it's, yeah, it's a really... A really and i think we go back to the sign the belief sign kind of my point on belief and confidence that belief sign is always there when they were losing matches in the championship when they were winning went on a 10 match win streak when they then lost 5 nil to man city kind of in represents what i'm talking about if you believe constantly and you constantly have a belief system good things will always happen Regardless of whether your confidence is fluctuating in and out, which it does, you know, it's a silly example, you know, but, you know, you can't win all the time and you're never always going to feel great. But if you constantly believe, I'm a massive believer that good things will always happen.
0: I'm going to be watching all these big tournaments, and I'll, I, the camera will soon day pan to you in the ground and I'll just see you say barbecue sauce. Um, <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what I did, what I did want to ask actually was about your role as a coach and previously as a hitting partner and I'm always fascinated by and I've asked players this and coaches but how do you determine or define success within your role is there do you have a particular standard that you like to hit or I'm I'm really making it too specific what would be your definition of success Mike is what I'm asking you
1: oh definition of success I think that it's almost for me giving everything that you possibly can with what you've got in the present day I think that for me is success and 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 I won't go into too much detail because it's a bit private with with the player that I coach right now we have certain things that we do which basically gives us an idea of where you're at for that day and you've got to try and fulfill what you've told me in the morning for that day so if you've only got I don't know if you're only a one out of ten it's fine get to that one, get to that one out of 10. If we planned a three hour session and you can only do 10 minutes, that 10 minutes has got to be to the highest possible quality that you can possibly give. And I think if you live by that, you're maximizing what you have on every single day, you know, as a, as an athlete, because it's so, it's so like, you know, old school that we think that we can wake up every single day and give a hundred percent all the time, you know, in every single in every single aspect of our life, it's 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 impossible, in my opinion. Um, but what we can do is, in that present moment where we are right now, we can give as much as we can possibly give if we're aware of how much we can give in that moment. You know, it's because it, it's all about matching and marrying expectations. If I wake up as a coach and think my player can give a ten out of ten, but they're saying they can only give a four, okay, when we give a six so you've got to push past your barrier a little bit but i'm not expecting you to be giving 100% for the full session so that's how that's how i try and define success i think you've had a successful session a successful year if you've been successful tournament if you've been able to do that consistently day in day out
0: that's actually really interesting i follow a lot of uh, visual kind of pages on instagram and they have a great one of like six circles in a line and they say what people think is showing up and it's like nearly the whole thing is full it's like what actually is showing up someday it's it's high someday it's low was that always your approach with success or has that been molded by your coaching journey so far
1: yeah definitely been molded for sure i think you know i i i I've always been very driven like even from a young kid like if I get something in my head it's not a case of like can I do it it's a case of when I'm gonna do it it's like I don't care how long it takes I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna achieve it and I think yeah like for me it's 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 definitely been molded from 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 that extent to the point of okay I don't have to do it now, straight away. I always used to be like, right, I have to get it done now. And why am I not doing it? Like, Whereas now I'm like, I've still got that philosophy in the way I'm thinking. Right, no, I'm going to do it. But there's going to be certain days where I can give more to that goal than maybe others because for lots of different reasons. So I think the being able to understand, understanding people, understanding the players I coach, speaking, again, we talk about, you know, the idea of like self-development, speaking to lots of different coaches, reading lots of books and podcasts, I think allows me to understand that things don't always just happen instantly. And longevity with success is also really, really important. Um, So, and and what I do as well is I, I journal a lot so I'll write a lot of things down and I think sometimes we can go through certain days and weeks where we feel like we've achieved nothing but actually when we look back at what we've written down oh, actually, you know what I've achieved a lot this week way more than you know way more than what what I thought I did um, so I think that also helps me understand that things don't just have to happen straight away. Uh,
0: you mentioned Dan Carter before I think it was a I can't remember the interview you said it but someone who's I've listened to on the High Performance Podcast I was interested he was your role model I think Uh, also interestingly he doesn't play tennis he always plays rugby Um, why did you pick him what did you admire about him
1: well we go back to Johnny Wilkinson so my granddad was very good friends with his granddad, and yeah I think Johnny I've never really had much of a chance to speak to him but I almost felt connected with Johnny just through the fact that my granddad was good friends with, you know, his granddad and spent a lot of time with him. And I remember him getting me like a signed book of his autograph and or autobiography, sorry, and everything. And, and that was when like my, I really like rugby. I, I really like rugby. I think it's such a, you know, such a good sport. And, and I love, I love team sports as much as I love individual sports. And I think through rugby and liking Johnny, I started to then I remember watching Dan Carter and, and I, I don't know, it was just I mean, I remember watching his documentary and I just thought this guy is just the epitome of what I think high performance is. So humble, works so hard, wants to give back, and is incredibly talented at what he does through his hard work, drive and determination. Um and I think for me, I rarely resonated with his story and and, you know, and, and and how, you know, it was never easy. He had to face a lot of injuries through his career. And when he talks, again, I'm going to go down the bloody feel route again. But when he talks, I listen. And I think there's some there's some really high profile athletes that when they talk, I might be listening. But am I engaged? When he talks, I listen. And I'm engaged. And and there's something about the things that he said that really resonate with me. And I can't necessarily put something on it or like there's not one comment that he's made that I'm like, that was it. Um, but yeah, I just think he's a phenomenal athlete and a, a phenomenal speaker. And he articulates himself really well.
0: Wow. I'm going to make this episode like a special like drinking game. Every time Mike says "feel," you take a shot.
1: <laughs> Jesus, you'd be uh, on the floor after about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I wanted to ask you actually uh, looking for light-hearted or serious don't give us any names if you don't want to but I'm looking for your best and worst hitting practice story
1: oh my god um, uh, my uh, my best has got to be with I'm gonna it's, <laughs> yeah no it's got to be with Federer uh, just, just like it's not even there's not like one story but just spending a lot of time with him over a long period Um, at a tournament was just phenomenal for so many reasons. Again, like I've got Andrew Murray was a big hero of mine, childhood hero and but he I think yeah it's the epitome of like tennis in my in my generation growing up. So him and Nadal. So um and then the worst one, and I've said this on a few podcasts before, I'm not gonna name the player, but I'm sure in the tennis world people can have a good good crack at who it might be. But I just remember getting, you know, obviously you know, told that I'm going to be practising with this guy. And I, got, you know, I was excited. He was a relatively big name within the tennis world at the time. He's been, you know, I think he's been top 10 in the world, won some big tournaments. Um, and I walk on the court and I knew from the very word go that I probably wasn't playing great. I just, for whatever reason, I just, I just wasn't. I couldn't put anything on it. Like it just sometimes it happens, you know what it's like in sport. It just happens. And yeah, within four or five minutes, he just walks over my side and says, thank you, but see you later. I don't want to practice with you. And as a, well, how old was I? I don't know, 19, 20-year-old, this is at Wimbledon, on one of the higher practice courts, where all the media's watching. It was demoralizing. Like, it was, like, horrible. Like, just you feel like that the world is ending because, like, some big name has just kicked you off the court. Um, so that's definitely my world. I mean, I laugh about it now because it's funny. Uh, but yeah, at the time it wasn't very funny. and and yeah, you're just kind of walking back around past all the public, knowing that they've you've probably full well been just kicked off the court up past the media. yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was a tough, uh, tough um tough five minutes or so. I let's put it that way. but um, yeah, you learn a lot from those even though because you you realize that even though those things happen, I came straight back out and practised with some of the best players in the world an hour later. So, um, yeah, that, was, that wasn't my finest moment.
0: Well, it's all worked out, thank God. Uh, and that's great that you got... I was going about to ask, how did you get over it? But having someone to go out with an hour later probably helped you just kind of...
1: That was... Yeah, I, I think a, a lot of people have asked me that. Oh, like, how have you managed to then go in? And I said, well, actually, the what I did, or, you know, I didn't really do anything. I I was just told that I'm going out again instantly and that was how I dealt with it as I went out and played really well with one of the best players in the world so like I think that was the that was my coping mechanism and I don't often you know advise this but my coping mechanism was just not think about it and just do it and then once I had a few good practices I then reflected back on it and thought actually yeah no it's not much I could have done I just I wasn't giving him what he was looking for and that was it so
0: I didn't send you this question I've only thought of it now and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts and it's something I struggle with and I do not play an elite level sport it's getting too high with the highs and getting too low with the lows do you ever find yourself getting wrapped up in that when you're in a world stage does it get kind of do you ever get yeah you like, are you able to keep yourself level or what way does it work for oh, you
1: it's so hard I mean I'm a competitor I'm now I'm coaching now but I'm still a born competitor I mean even a few days ago we the player that I coach was playing in in at the US Open, honestly, hundreds of thousands of people watching her. Um, So for three and a half hours, she's had a match point. And um, yeah, she ends up losing the match. And I was distraught, you know, I was actually distraught. The emotions, the highs, the lows that I felt over those three and a half hours, I was exhausted. Even now, um, it still hurts. So I can't obviously imagine how she's feeling. Um, well I can I can't I've been in those types of situations not at the US Open but um, yeah you, you 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 can relate to how she's feeling but it was just distraught distraught. and I think I deal with it better now than I probably did um, but I'm still my emotions are you know on the sideline I'm having to not show anyone how I'm feeling but only really show the positive side yeah. of me and Let's go, let's go, you know, like come on, keep working at this and you know, getting up off my seat, fist pumps, just you know, she really feels that good positive energy. Inside, I'm an absolute wreck. Like, I think they think coaches are just sitting on the side, just having a jolly in the sun on TV. No, I'm telling you, we all feel it. Um so but in regards to players, how I coach it, I, I I go on like arousal levels and I think it's about finding the player's optimum arousal level. If you're like, this is a line, you're going to obviously go high positive, low negative, low positive, low negative. It's going to be a little bit of a roller coaster, but like Federer works best when he's only tapping into low positive, low negative. Nadal works best when he's going really high positive and only low negative. Djokovic needs to go real high negative, smash a few rackets to probably get himself back into like. Oof, I've released that now. So I think, again, it's about understanding that with the arousal level, where does the player work best? Andy Murray loves being negative. We all know that. He's a negative Nelly. But that works for him. That that just, that like how he is, that works for him. He, he, he needs to express that to his box in the match in order to find himself in a place where he feels like he can compete well enough. So again, I think it's, I try and base... Based that question that you've asked on finding the person's right arousal level
0: again goes back to feel listeners take another shot yeah
1: take another shot yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, I've just this is brilliant I'm learning so much what I wanted to ask you as well for anyone listening I don't coach tennis I coach very different sports or team sports but for anyone listening for generic coaches or it doesn't athletes or wherever it is what are your tips or your advice to being the best coach you can be What anything in particular that stands out to you that you'd love to share with the listeners
1: yeah I mean I hope I hope what I've spoken about is transferable because I do think I do believe that it is very transferable and I sometimes think to myself I could feel like I could work in all sports because just understanding the person understanding the athlete it doesn't matter what they do it's you know Um, but I guess understand the person first, develop the relationship, develop trust. And I know this is probably the, it's one of the most things that we talk about. Listen, listen, listen to the athlete, because I'm telling you now the amount of coaches that I've seen just not listen, listen, listen to what they have to say. Give them eye contact, sit them down, give them time to express how they feel. I think is one of the most underrated coaching skills across probably all sports. You know, if you don't listen to what their needs are, you don't listen to how they're feeling. It's impossible to help them long-term. You're not going to build a relationship. Um, So yeah, I guess that kind of comes under understanding the athlete, find what makes them tick. You know, it's different for everyone telling someone they're terrible at something can actually make them tick. You have to do it in the right way, but Someone like I said, I shared that story earlier, there was a player that I coached that if I told this person not to do something, that's what makes them tick because they want to prove me wrong. And I'll never forget I'll just tell this that i I did I did that. I wasn't traveling with her for for this week, but I was kind of still working with her. I worked with her for a long time, and um I said I knew I knew that this made her tick, so I said to her, "Look, there's no way you're getting to a final." in this tournament there's no chance you're not going to do it like i'm telling you i don't really think you're playing that well and it was obviously said and jeff we were joking a little bit but i knew it would piss her off you know um and a week later she texts me i've spoken to her throughout the week of course but she goes you know when we had that conversation well actually i'm in the semi of the singles and final of doubles so won't tell you what she said next but i'm sure you can yeah you can probably but but and that's that just that's what she gets you know gets she when she's in those tougher moments and she remembers me you know a uh, stupid coach telling her to she's shit I shouldn't swear but you know like it's that's what she that's what we she you know taps into she's like okay I'm going to prove you wrong you know so I think it is it's finding it's finding what finding what your your athlete you know finding what makes them tick and, and how are you going to get the best out of them And and that is often very different for different people
0: I'm interested as well with um, your relationship with an athlete. Obviously, when you're going to a tournament, you might travel together. But afterwards, whether it's win or lose or you're out at any point, do you kind of have this period of where you just leave each other alone, you don't really contact her? Obviously, it'll depend on each athlete. But how do you balance kind of the giving them a bit of time and having your own time as well, Mike?
1: Yeah, so if we go like after matches, obviously, if you win a match, they're more receptive to chatting to you straight away. Um, if you lose a batch, they're not I actually try regardless of whether they win or lose to give them their space for 20 minutes 20 to 30 minutes because I think I want to create habits because I think if if they know that every time they win I'm there and then all of a sudden every time they lose I'm not going to be there for an hour I think that in their head creates the perception that I'm only with them when they win so what I try and do is is for that thirty minutes after the match is finished, I'll obviously go up to them, give them a hug, say well done, whatever. I'll give them their time, just thirty minutes, win or lose. That then creates for me the idea that regardless of what happens, you're going to get your time, but I'm always going to be there after kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's obviously dependent on the situation, you know, depending on how they react, what they need. That obviously I'm flexible with that, but I try and try and do that as much as I can. And then, yeah, if if it also depends on what, how, not seriously is the wrong word, but how many weeks I'm working with them. So if, if maybe it might be we do three, four tournaments in a row and then they come back and do a practice week. It's so dependent on so many things. And again, we'll take another shot, but it's down to feel. <laughs> it is just down to feel. Like there's times where after we've played a full tournament, I want to get straight back on the practice court an hour after the final. Because there was something I just didn't like all week. And because it's fresh in my mind and we get and we work on it. There's sometimes when you played four hours on court that you need the rest, you need the recovery. So, um yeah, I think the one thing that I do live by from a tournament standpoint is like I said, that thirty minutes win or lose after the match.
0: Are there any particular um or is there a particular criteria you look for in a player that wants to work with you that you kind of not a checklist maybe it's less informal than that but are there any particular attributes you look for in those players
1: yeah it's a great question again it's down to the performer I think uh, it sounds obvious but if you're not giving 100% of what you can give day in day out working hard humble respectful all of these things to an extent we all have our moments you know we all break rackets, say things we shouldn't do, treat people we shouldn't, of course we do. But as a whole, I think, yeah, just, just to perform a bit, you know, just, you know, are you fully dedicated to what you're saying to me you want to achieve? Because if you are, I'll fully dedicate myself to you in developing you. If you're not, I'm not really that interested. And, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way of like, oh, like, you know, I'm not going to work with you because of course I'll always facilitate someone and I'd always want to listen and and understand and try and get into their psyche of what makes them tick. But I think it's really important that what I give replicates what they want to give, because all of a sudden, if I'm giving more than them, I think that's when relationships become challenging. And likewise, if they're giving more than me, you know, so it's, it's about, it's about trying to find the balance of, right, what are you willing to give? And can I match that? And am I willing to match that is, is kind of how I, how I look at it.
0: Okay. Apart from watching Ted Lasso, how do you switch off? Is there anything you like to do away away from tennis or is it just every,
1: 24-7? I mean, I'm lucky that I live in Spain and uh, I've got the beach on my doorstep so I love going to the beach. Um, I'm a bit of a fitness freak. I love running. I love going to the gym. Um, that's kind of what my way of switching off but it, it's hard because I've played tennis since I was four years old so which is, yeah, twenty-two years of my life, and and I think sometimes my way of switching off is watching tennis. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? Sounds like you know really sad. But I talk about athletes being obsessed. I am a bit obsessed. You know, I love what I do. I adore what I do. And don't get me wrong. There's times where I need to just completely switch off from tennis. But and I will. Yeah, like I said, go to the beach, go on the boat. You know. Do whatever I want to do, like it's non not related to tennis. But uh, I love it. I'm obsessed with it, and 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 not just that—the feeling of developing the the high-performance element, the coaching element. Um, yeah, I don't think I'll ever get old of old of doing that, and can see myself doing that for a number of years to come.
0: Wow. Do you can you um can you watch a match and just enjoy the game, or are you always looking like what are they doing and looking for the the different things?
1: That's a great question. Yes and no. I think my, again, like I said, I'm like, if someone wants me to help them achieve something, I'm all in. So if I'm watching, especially because now I'm working a little bit more at the pro level, if I'm watching someone that has maybe beaten my player a few weeks ago, I can't switch off from understanding what they did that, you know, how have they done that? what are they good at? How can I add those bits into my players' game? You know, if I'm watching a match that's maybe not necessarily related to the player that I'm currently working with, I probably appreciate what's going on more. Um I've actually probably spent a lot more time in women's tennis than I have in, in in men's tennis in the first few years of my career. Um so I think when I do watch the men, there's that little bit of switch off because I don't feel like I have to constantly analyse what's going on because and not a threat to to you know to the players that I'm working, with. whereas when I'm watching women's tennis, which I watch a lot, I'm always thinking like oh, what's what's she doing that that maybe this player could do and you know all those types of things um and i I find it, yeah, I find it all fascinating, but um yeah there's there's sometimes I also depends on the company. if I've got family over and we're just watching some tennis, then I can switch off, but if I'm on my own. I'm a sucker for getting a notepad and pen out and starting to write things down.
0: Wow, okay, right. And I'm interested as well, maybe you haven't coached enough men to give it an answer to this, but coaching men versus women, do you see a difference? Do you approach it differently? How do you balance? Um...
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think I I try not to see it differently. Again, I coach the person. Um, I, think, I think that, um yeah coaching the person and again being able to tap into what they need is regardless of whether they're a man or a woman that's you know that's the most important thing for me um there's obviously you look at stats and we talk about analytics there's differences with serve speed with physicality with whether men men generally end up trying to hit their forehand a little bit more, the women don't as much. There's obviously those elements, but we talk about the tennis player, the performer. The tennis player comes is different, you know? Uh, It is different, and you have to coach probably a little bit differently from that perspective. But the performer is very, very similar. You know, what I will say to female athletes is very similar to what I will say to male athletes, depending on the personality of the athlete I'm coaching. So um, there's subtle differences here and there, and I think... Um, you have to adapt the way that you work to that. And there's certain like technical and tactical things that are run in practices, which will probably be a little bit different depending on if it's a male or female tennis player. But in general, it's it's relatively similar.
0: Mm -hmm. I was interested when you mentioned your stepdad being involved with Norwich um, and you kind of do have interest in other sports. If I could give you the key to go into any team or watch any athlete in the world for a week and just be a fly on the wall, who would it be and why?
1: Oh, what a question! Um, oh, obviously Dan Carter would definitely be up there. Who would it be? I'm a massive football fan, a massive football fan, and I think I have a lot of admiration for for a few athletes. But I can't think of anyone that I would probably, well, if I got the chance to watch Messi up front, of course I would. You know, <laughs> no, but. I, I think if I was to watch anyone you put me on the spot here. Big dad You've really <laughs> put me on the spot. I'm crumbling under the pressure.
0: You're not a performer, Mike, no? I'm not a performer, <laughs> no,
1: no, no. No, absolutely not. I have massive admiration and would love nothing more than to spend a week with Tiger Woods.
0: Oh, wow. You wouldn't and, be the only one.
1: Yeah, and not just because of his golf he's had a lot of negative press um over the years and i think i do believe that there's something about someone that's faced true adversity in the public that would be able to share really valuable life lessons um so i think tiger woods be someone that uh, i I like golf but i'm not like obsessed with golf you know you know I, i like i love watching golf i'll sometimes play a little bit of golf. But I, yeah, I I think he would be a really interesting person to to spend a week with and to kind of be on a fly on the wall and see how what he does. Because I've had so many amazing stories and so many not so amazing stories about him. But that's what makes him Tiger Woods. And I think he owns that. And I think that's what I really like about those types of athletes.
0: Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone away to watch people just observe it in an, at all?
1: No, not so much. I mean, I've, I have like with conferences, I'm part of the World Tennis Conferences and I'm one of the coaches on there. And, and it's basically a massive platform around the world where people can listen to high performing coaches just talk and chat on different topics. I've had the chance to obviously spend a lot of time with the coaches on there, but not from a physical standpoint, actually go and, you know, and uh, yeah, like almost just go for my own, you know, just pleasure to just go and right, watch and, I'm around it all the time, I think that's the the challenging thing is you I mean I know it's it's only tennis I haven't maybe dipped into other sports, but um and there's a lot of transferable skills I know, but I think when you're around the high performing kind of mindset all the time, I think yeah it's 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 good to have different perspectives in different sports but i I get it so much that I think that's also I enjoy trying to switch off from that when I can um but no, I'd love to. I, Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan, all of these, all of these types of athletes. I think, and, and not just like not just athletes. I would argue, like like Alan Sugar, someone that's self-made, or anyone that's self-made, or anyone that's had success in their own industry. I would be fascinated to spend, you know. To spend uh, a week and uh, just an afternoon with them, because I think there is so many things that can transfer over, um, in regards to yeah, different different skills.
0: Brilliant. I'm gonna unfortunately have to bring this to an end. No, We've course. hit an hour and no. a half, <laughs> but we'll have to do a part two. We no. can do it live from Spain, or we can do it about Ted Lasso. Um, I'm gonna move absolutely. on. <laughs> I'm gonna move on to the sideline seven. It's the same seven questions at the end of every episode. Question one, Mike. Uh, what is your favorite quote?
1: I I'm. Uh, happy you said this I've actually got it on my arm so I know so it's life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass it's about learning to dance in the rain so my dad said that to me from from a very very young age um and it just always stuck with me uh and yeah when I was a little bit older and I could I'm not like a massive tattoo person I'm really not I've always maybe wanted to have one or two but I always said to myself, right, that means so much that, yeah, I want that I want that with me. So, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Question two, what's the best sporting event you've been to? And you pick one as a fan and one involves the player, hitting partner or coach.
1: Um, coach, Australian Open. Fan, I've seen Norwich play Middlesbrough in the playoff final at Wembley and we won so that would be yeah that, I always remember that that top set. I think as a fan
0: brilliant question three what's been the biggest setback or challenge so far in your career and how did you react to it
1: well, Um, I think just being told that just it's not necessarily one thing but just being told you're not good enough I think that's like, uh, there's been a few occasions where someone's just told me, I just don't think you're good enough. And don't get me wrong, I thrive off that and I enjoy that, but it always hurts when someone says it to you. So I think, yeah, just being told you're not good enough or you're never going to be this or you're too young to do that. That's a common one. Yeah, you're way too young to coach at that level. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to swear on this podcast again because I've already done it, but uh, I have I get a kick out of that and I enjoy it when people say that to me because often it shows like we spoke about, they're not very, very curious. So um, yeah, that, like those types of comments, they do set you back. They do. They they take a bit of a hit, but I think it's how you respond to them, which is the most important thing.
0: Brilliant. On the flip side then, what's been your biggest achievement on or off the court so far?
1: Um, biggest achievement on or off the court? I think, obviously, coaching at a Grand Slam as a tennis, as a tennis, you know, player previous and and any if anyone knows tennis well, like the pinnacle is playing. But if you can't play, you know, coaching at a grand slam, um, coaching some of the best players in the world, hitting with some of the best players in the world. I mean, I was really lucky. I say lucky. I feel like you develop your own luck. But I practiced. I warmed on Jibura up for the final on Centre Court at Wimbledon this year unfortunately she lost which she reminds me of quite often when I see her um but yeah just just doing that is was incredible again as a it's a you know I don't know what I can compare it to it's like playing in a World Cup final like and playing or warming up on the in the stadium you play a World Cup final in, but playing at center court like on center court sorry at Wimbledon I mean there's no way on earth at the age of 11 12 years old that I would ever even think about doing that And then there I was warming up someone for the final. So I'd say that's pretty cool.
0: Wow. That's probably the best answer I've ever gotten. No disrespect to (laughs) any other person (laughs) I've had on. (laughs) Um, Question five. Looking back, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self?
1: Be patient. Be patient. There's no need to rush. Like, I'll get to where I need to get to whenever I get there. And I think be humble, work hard it's all very I know a lot of things everyone says I'm sure to you but just give yourself time and understand that things will happen when they're meant to happen
0: brilliant question six who would be your dream dinner guest and why and you can open up the table to a few people and have a dinner party if you want Mike
1: Ooh. I feel like if I don't send my girlfriend I might get I might get in a bit of trouble <laughs> um my dream dinner guest Dan Carter would be there. I'm going to pick two and then I, I, won't, I won't get I'll, going. I'll allow get, it. Yeah. Dan Carter would definitely be there. And I would also like Tiger Woods.
0: Yeah. Class. Brilliant. Final question before I let you go. You've been so generous with your time, but I am going to, I'm going to pull you back for part two at some point. Uh, if your life was a book, Mike, what chapter would this be called?
1: Um... Oh wow. I would say Oh God. Um I'm gonna say it not because of not because of the fact that there's a podcast name after it and it's part of the academy, but control the controllables. I just think it's like I have and I'll I'll be open like I can sometimes struggle to control the controllables. It frustrates me. It annoys me that I can't do something now. I said this earlier. So I've that's why I've had to learn to be patient. But control what you can control and let the rest kind of take care of itself. Brilliant.
0: I was worried at one point you'd say feel and we'd have to take another shot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought like I can't do that to anyone else. I can't do that.
0: <laughs> Mike, this has been brilliant. Uh, if there's anyone listening that wants to get in touch or follow your journey or just keep up with what you're doing, where is the best place um to do that?
1: So it's on my socials. Um I can obviously maybe we can put the link in or something. I don't know. Yeah, but um yeah. yeah, I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, um, uh yeah, I'm on Twitter. So it's I can we'll put it in the social instead of me having to name them all, like my different links, but yeah, any social media stream, um And, yeah, I've also been on quite a few podcasts. Yeah. And anyone that wants, I'm a big believer, anyone wants any advice on anything. I'm normally pretty good at getting back to people quite quickly. Um, So, yeah, anything on any advice, tennis, non-tennis, high performance. I, I love chatting to people about it. So more than happy to help.
0: Brilliant, sounds great. I'll leave all those links as I said in the box, uh, the description box of the episode and Mike, just thanks again. I really enjoyed this. I learned a lot. I have a full page of notes here beside me and uh, best of luck and I'm sure hopefully we'll catch up again soon. No, it was a
1: pleasure. Thank you for having me
0: on. A big thank you to Mike for joining me on today's podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat and I hope you got something from it. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and hopefully getting over to visit the Soto Tennis Academy in Spain. If you are enjoying the episodes, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as it does help the show grow. You can follow all of our social media to keep up to date with the latest episodes and order content, and be sure to send in your suggestions. As always, thank you for listening.